Welcome to this episode of the VO2 Lounge. In this episode, I'll be talking about heat acclimation, its benefits, how to perform it, as in sort of how to set up a training plan around it, uh, and is it a poor man's altitude training? Uh, if you're new to the podcast, then welcome, and I hope you enjoy. If you are a returning customer to the podcast, then why not follow if you haven't already and leave a rating on your pod platform of choice. So there have been a few occasions now where the benefits of heat acclimation have been mentioned to me, but only recently have I heard uh, the possibility of heat acclimation training also benefiting performance at lower temperatures rather than just being a tool for improving performance in the heat. Uh, a bit like the effect altitude has been suggested to have on sea level performances. That's a kind of easy way of looking at it. Uh, heat acclimation is documented to induce numerous physiological adaptions that uh, theoretically could improve aerobic exercise performance in cool temperature conditions. Uh, these physiological adaptions from heat acclimation include reduced oxygen uptake at given power output, muscle glycogen sparing, reduced blood lactate at a given power output, plasma volume expansion, improved mitochondrial efficiency, and increased ventricular uh, compliance, and then an enhanced force generation in the soleus muscle. Now, so these all are kind of the adapt, well, they are the adaptions you are striving to achieve by doing endurance training in general. So clearly, from this high level introduction to heat acclimation it would be thought that not only is it going to benefit you if you're coming into summer like we are in the northern hemisphere currently and some parts of Europe are pretty hot at the moment but also something that all year round can be used to improve performance but more specifically possibly used for a major event maybe Five weeks out, you include a part of your build for your A race or A your target event, and it could improve your performance. The, uh, the the study I came across that gave me the idea of making this episode in the first place was simply called Heat Acclimation Improves Exercise Performance, published back in 2010. Um, obviously, I came across it in recent history, probably something like... Um, maybe the 10th of the 7th, 2023, maybe that's when I came across it. But nonetheless, I came across it. So the study design um, was that participants completed a, a battery of physiological and performance tests under two different environmental conditions and then completed either an exercise heat acclimation program or a control program, uh, identical exercise intensity, but in a cool environment comparatively. Um, and then the physiological and performance tests were repeated again so you had your benchmark and then you had your um your actual final test to see how things had changed uh, the performance test battery included a lactate threshold test followed by a vo2 max test and a time trial performance test on a separate day um just a different bit i guess i suppose it the usefulness of this can help with the way i looked at it is Lactate threshold testing, obviously, is kind of looking at your longer form performance. VO2 max um, is obviously just looking at maximal aerobic uh, capacity, um, but in a somewhat different manner. And then the time trial is also kind of bringing in some cognition because there's an awful lot of 
pacing involved uh, to a time trial and managing the effort. So it could be thought that if you're hot, uncomfortable, poorly acclimated, then there's a possibility that pacing may suffer simply because of the cognitive load in your level of cognitive function. So uh, the maximal aerobic power and time trial tests were both included to provide two separate measurements of aerobic performance. This is from what the uh, people who created the study stated. Uh, while the lactate thresholds test was provided insight into the physiological uh, mechanism um, itself, providing the difference. So that's their take on things. No attempt was made to control for training during the lead-in phase of the study, although subjects were uh, required um, the same club team, uh, sorry, were recruited from the same club team and thus had the same competition schedule and essentially identical training routines. You would have thought they're somewhat distributed equally throughout the team. So on the days um, the tests were performed under heat stress, the climatic chamber was set to 38 degrees and a 30% relative humidity. Um, on days when the studies were performed in cool conditions, the climatic chamber was set to 13 degrees, again with 30% relative humidity. Um, the 13% uh, 13 degrees Celsius environment, uh, these are all degrees Celsius, by the way, not Fahrenheit. So if you're American or of somewhere that uses those kind of units, that's why these all seem uh, comparatively lower. Um, but the 13 degree environment was selected because it approximates the thermal conditions believed to be optimal for aerobic performance. Uh, the order between hot and cool uh, trials were randomized, and then the heat acclimation protocol consisted of 10 exposures uh, of cycle ergometer exercise at a temperature of 40 degrees C, with 30% relative humidity. So obviously they have got a higher exposure than the test they're actually going to come under, but the 10 exposures um, is the heat acclimation. Uh, subjects perform two bouts of 45 minutes at 50% of their VO2 max, with 10 minutes of rest in between. Uh, a match control group exercised at the same intensity, but with a chamber set to 13 degrees C. Uh, again, 30% relative humidity. The 50% of VO2 max exercise intensity was selected as a as it would um, represent com uh, sorry compensable heat stress sufficient to induce heat acclimation, but not be sufficient to induce training adaptions for highly trained athletes. Um, subjects were introduced to uh, maintain their normal training routines during the 10-day period, um, and that's the general uh, how the study sorry was constructed now on each study visit subjects were reported to the laboratory after two hour fast and well hydrated subjects were introduced to avoid consumption of alcohol or caffeine for at least eight to twelve hours before the study probably should have been a bit longer but uh, I suppose caffeine six hour half-life it's going to get out of the system faster uh, but it, I suppose it could be the elements of how it affects sleep and so on and so forth. But you can't have it all. Now, what were their findings? We've gone over effectively the fact that initially, um, baseline tests performed. Um, the cool environment was 13 degrees C. The hot environment was 38. 
One group was able to acclimatize to the 38 degree C environment with 10, uh, 10 uh, interventions of 40 degree C exposure. So they found that heat acclimation increased VO2 max by 5% in the cool and 8% in the heat. Um, heat acclimation improved time trial performance by 6% in the cool conditions. Heat acclimation increased power output at lactate threshold by 5% in the cool and 5% in the hot conditions. And then heat acclimation increased plasma volume uh, by approximately 6.5% and maximal cardiac output in the cool and hot conditions um, by 9.1% and then 4.5% respectively. So the, the cool group had no changes in VO2 max, time trial performance, lactate threshold or physiological parameters. Uh, now, this sort of demonstrates, one, I suppose the study was successful in the sense that they were able to eliminate any improvements in performance due to surrounding training that could muddy the waters whilst also showing the benefits of this heat acclimation not only in uh, warm temperatures and warm climates but also in uh, the cooler 13 degree uh, temperatures now in some countries obviously you may start the race season and it'd be less than 13 degrees in the uk it could be less than 13 degrees in the middle of summer it's just how it is but you would have thought they would still track across that these physiological adaptions clearly in from this study are actually resulting in improved performance. Now that's the study and that's the the results you may expect to see and how the study's kind of constructed, but what are the actual adaptions occurring to result in the this acclimation to the heat now we'll do an initial kind of high overview and then i'll go into them in greater detail but this part of the episode will go more into roughly what the adaptions are and how you can implement training to gain these adaptions so when humans are repeatedly exposed to conditions that are sufficiently stressful to elicit um like sweating and elevate skin and core temperature adaptions develop that reduce the negative effects of heat stress so as a quick reminder the uh, the adaptions that develop during uh, repeated exposures to hot conditions um, that improve performance during submaximal exercise is increased maximal aerobic capacity which vo2 max and enhanced thermal comfort in the heat these benefits are achieved through plasma volume expansion better maintenance of fluid balance, enhanced sweating uh, and continuous blood flow uh, responses, lowered exercise, um, exercising metabolic rate um, and acquired thermal tolerance through the heat uh, shock response, all which contribute to improved cardiovascular stability and exercise performance during heat stress. Um, so the physiological adaptions related to repeated heat exposure develop relatively quickly with 75 to 80 percent of the acclimation process occurring in the first four to seven days uh, these adaptions can be categorized into short term and then medium term is eight to 14 days and then long term acclimation is something over 
the kind of 15 day mark. Now, you can look it up uh, and find graphs of it and you can see how you really by that say 10th day um, of heat acclimation, you have gone a lot of the way to uh, gaining a lot of the benefits. Um, so now you may think, oh, I'm not going to do a workout in the heat every single day. Now we'll get kind of onto that. But although passive heat exposure induces adaptions in line with the magnitude of strain and passive hot water immersion after exercise can improve endurance performance in the heat. So you can essentially, uh, there's a good combo with doing your exercise, then getting into the hot bath. And that can be more powerful than just uh, having the hot bath in the first place or the sauna. Um, but the inclusion of exercise with heat exposure provides additional strain that generally elicits more profound adaptions in comparison to your just um, standard, uh, like either sauna exposure or heat tent or hot bath or whatever method you're using or just sitting in the sun for example if you live in a hot enough country um so these uh magnitude of physical adaptions induced by heat acclimation or acclimatization depends largely on the initial heat exposure status so if you have recently been exposed to high levels of heat um and possibly even you have a high uh, fitness because naturally core temperature is going to rise in that and those adaptions are going to come with it um, you are less likely to see as greater adaption but it's also um, linked to exercise intensity duration frequency and number of heat exposures uh, along with the the protocol itself so Protocol wise, you may have been seen people using saunas, sauna tents, hot baths, etc. for 30 minutes to an hour post endurance ride. But clearly the optimal method would be to create an artificially warm environment to exercise in. Now that could be uh, turning up the heating uh, in a room of your home or alternatively, maybe you have room that gets more sun than others during the summer, like a conservatory. Um, or sunroom of some description that you can work out in without a fan um, you could find if it is the summer you could work out outside but on a stationary trainer like rollers but in the shade you know plenty of sun cream on and all that good stuff but in the shade so you've still got the kind of ambient heat um, and then uh, no fan and just artificially heat the environment if you have none of those things uh, and you have no other way of kind of getting really hot, then the simple answer is layers. It's annoying to have to kind of fully drench clothing. It's uncomfortable and it's just uncomfortable in a different kind of way. But that is another way of artificially increasing the, the effect the environment is having on your core temperature now really fancy protocols will monitor the temperature and run into say like a 39 degree 39.5 degree um set point for lack of a better word but for this sake just keeping it really easy watching the heart rate and if say normally you're at 130 uh your heart rate's at 130 beats per minute whilst at like 200 watts 
then what you're trying to do effectively is really early on in that session really get it up so that you may be doing now 160 beats per minute while at 200 watts to show that the body is working hard to deal with something other than the exercise itself and then there is an element of say you're training six days a week maybe five you have two intensity days already in there you don't want to sacrifice those intensity days by doing this heat protocol so essentially you could pick two or three rides to do hot or maybe hot for a portion maybe you do a two hour outdoor ride come back get in the hot room chamber whatever you want to do you do an additional hour say for example and then on the days that we are not doing these heat protocols then you could just do the hot bath after the ride or the hot bath in general on the rest day or whatever it is just to continue the stress um, into the following days whilst not compromising training itself because that's what you don't want to do you don't want to get a two percent bump in performance due to the heat acclimation but a five percent drop because you didn't work out so net you're like three percent down that's not what you, that's not what you want you want to make sure you're still trending up and that's the fine line you have to play now we'll get kind of more into the nerdy uh, stuff but just in general just go through each adaption kind of what's happening what's reported why it could be improving but starting with blood plasma volume um in general the the mass represented by water in the human body is about 60 percent this fraction varies in relation to body composition however um, the total body water estimates are generally calculated as a constant uh, fraction of fat free mass with a factor of 0.737 during the first week of heat acclimation total body water generally increases by two to three liters which is five to seven percent most of which comes in the first three to four days uh, this increase in the uh, is divided between extracellular so outside the cell and intracellular fluid compartments and then that simply just one you can look at it as like a carb load in a sense of you just simply have more water on board meaning you can increase your sweat rate and not suffer from the side effects of dehydration um, and that's key really it is allowing for adequate cooling of the body during these periods of hot uh, exposure we're talking of which the whole dehydration thing so now you've got the effects on fluid balance and the thirst mechanism and linking to dehydration so heat uh, acclimation improves the relationship of the thirst to body water needs by reducing the time uh, to first drink um, so this is just unprompted time between the uh, start well start of exercise and as your fluid uh, levels start to reduce or change and how long it takes to actually drink and the increased number of drinks consumed per heat exposure also increases and the increase in mean volume per drink so you're drinking more often you're drinking faster and you're consuming more when you drink um, so voluntary dehydration is uh, markably reduced by approximately 30 percent 
so dehydration or a reduction in total body water and plasma volume is known to adversely increase cardiovascular strain and impair aerobic performance during exercise and heat stress. Uh, the negative cardiovascular effects of dehydration are characterized by difficulty to sustain blood pressure and cardiac output and a potential reduction in skeletal muscle blood flow during exercise during these heat stress exposures. Um, so the combination, uh, the combining dehydration with exercise heat stress results in a reduced cardiac output and skeletal muscle, mud flow, muscle blood flow um, compared to when uh, you are adequately hydrated, which are two bad things. You don't really want to have the working muscle fueled inadequately um, and you don't want more stress on the cardiac muscle, on the heart, because then that's going to double the increase effectively you're having. One, uh, the muscle is again fueled correctly and the flow's reduced and so you're trying to pump harder to get it because it's demanding more and then the heart pumps faster anyway because you know it's the uh, plasma volume's going down and it's just under more stress so drinking sufficient fluids minimizes dehydration during heat acclimation should therefore be um, a help to sustain cardiac output and perhaps skeletal muscle blood flow um, and then just improve exercise capacity under the hot environments. Um, and then you could look at it as how being hypercompensated for the cooler environment then may carry these adaptions effectively across. You may adequately hydrate when in cooler environments people typically can end up becoming dehydrated because they don't feel it's necessary because it's cold really simply simply put now on to cardiovascular adaptions so the primary uh, challenge for the cardiovascular system during exercise in the heat is to provide sufficient cardiac output to adequately um, perfuse I suppose you could say the skeletal muscle to support uh, metabolism while um, simultaneously perfusing skin to support heat loss so it's got two destinations it needs to meet fulfill reach um, now the traditional belief was that the skeletal muscle blood flow is not altered by heat stress and that the increases in cardiac output support elevated skin blood flow requirements studies however show that Elevated tissue blood temperatures uh, induce an increase in the skeletal muscle blood flow during rest and exercise. The mechanism mediating this increase uh, may um, include an interaction of the metabolic and thermal stimuli inducing the release of um, ATP, and which is a vasodilator, which is kind of, you know, impressive in the sense that, you know, if there's a prevalence of ATP, which is the primary uh, energy currency then you would assume that if it's in higher amounts than normal then that must mean there is some kind of demand for fuel and what better way to do it than to cause vasodilation so the widening of or expansion of the blood vessels and therefore allow for adequate flow to reach 
those working muscles. Now these uh, metabolic and thermoregulatory demands are generally viewed uh, as competing factors um, whereby cardiac function is altered as a result. So the distribution of cardiac output is modified and all the ability to sustain adequate blood pressure is compromised. Uh, alternatively, uh, the conflict between regulatory systems may be viewed as um, co-mannerism. Uh, an integrated balance of a regulatory control when one circulation benefits without substantially affecting the other, uh, notwithstanding heat acclimation improves the ability to sustain cardiac output during exercise in the hot environment. So it's kind of still a bit here, there, everywhere, whatever. But simply put, if you're going to do a hot event, doing heat acclimation is going to result in an improved ability for your body to naturally balance these two effects while not having a major effect on the other. Um, the hallmark cardiovascular adaptions induced during heat acclimation include a lowering of heart rate um, and an increase in stroke volume which support the maintenance of cardiac output and regulation of blood pressure during submaxal exercise. Uh, the lowering of heart rate and increased stroke volume are likely supported by changes in uh, myocardial uh, autonomic tone. Uh, with each acclimation, is anticipated that better tissue perfusion, reduced metabolic lactate production, reduced respiratory compensation, improved cardiac filling and blood pressure regulation, reduced tissue, i.e. the muscle and brain, temperatures, modifying central command and all contribute to alter cardiac autonomic regulation. Essentially, all your voluntary responses to heat are better controlled after some heat acclimation. So, bloody do it <laughs> especially if you're going on things like obviously being cycling specific but you've got like these multi-day events like the um out route or the out route out route i forget but europe can get pretty warm if you're going to do something like yeah you know, if you're keen enough to go do cape epic for example it can get really hot over there any of these kind of multi even if it's just like a bikepacking trip where the aim is to have fun on this event then leading into it with a little bit of discomfort and getting some heat ad, uh, acclimation is just going to really improve as well the multi-day effect because i mean i've done some events where it's hot I haven't come in with any form of acclimation other than the passive acclimation of maybe the environment that i'm in being of a similar temperature in the lead up because it's in the same country but other than that i haven't done much and i felt absolutely cooked afterwards um but the next day i just put my feet up and didn't do anything so there's even a place to say that possibly these this heat acclimation is not only going to improve the immediate performance in the heat but possibly the multi-day performance could be compounded due to the detriment not having the acclimation it's going to have now we've already kind of spoken about the effects on sports performance right at the very beginning but it'd be good to culminate it all and kind of just make it more specific in theory this can be for both endurance 
and for things like team sports, definitely a bit of heat acclimation. A bit of story of old, uh, playing rugby at a club. We were going to, our semi-final for a cup match um, was going to be played during one of the heat waves. And to whether there was any adaptions elicited from this single, singular training session, I don't know. From the looks of things, there may have been some stimulus and because it was hot already during the day, we would have all benefited somewhat to to the heat acclimation. I think more than anything, it was the psychological effect of doing this. But effectively, we got told to train with bin bags on. Now, I can tell you we got sweaty and it was really hot. But it did two things. One, put us all in the mental framework. Two, got used to the discomfort. And three, maybe there was some um, actual adaptions occurring. But on to what I have to say. Heat acclimation has been shown to improve the VO2 max um, of trained individuals in hot conditions with a 4% um, increase uh, from of 8 to 10%. Uh, sorry, in hot conditions with 4% being seen at around the 49 degree mark and increases of 8 to 10% being at that 38 degree mark. Uh, despite these improvements, acute heat stress mediates a reduction in VO2 max relative to values recorded in temperate conditions that cannot be compared. Uh, sorry, cannot be compensated for by heat acclimation. Basically, saying VO2 max in the heat remains low than in the cooler conditions. So you're not. Which doesn't kind of really matter. You're not trying to make your VO2 max increase across the board relative to your like absolute peak value. What you're doing is trying to minimize the detriment of which the heat is having on the body. Because anything that deviates from optimal is not going to be optimal. So observations of enhanced self-paced exercise performance have also been noted in cool conditions in proportion to improvements in VO2 max under the same conditions. This supports the previous observations of heat acclimation increasing VO2 max uh, in training, uh, in, sorry, in trained uh, and untrained athletes and unfit who trained about 3 to 5%, untrained 13 and unfit 23 Um a lot of things are like this, like caffeine, uh, nitrates. Often the the performance benefits and the methods of which they mediate themselves onto uh, the individuals um, are often very similar to what training adaptions are themselves. Hence why they improve performance. Because if they were anything other than the adaptions of performance, then of training then they probably wouldn't do anything because they're clearly not relative to the performance themselves so i think the simple thing is that the fitter you are effectively you've already eaten up a lot of those improvements whereas if you're less well trained so it could even be a tool for when you know you know you're missing something and you're unable to cram in the volume you once were this could be a way of kind of limit like improving the performance a little bit more so the pathways via which the transfer adaptions between hot and cool conditions 
would increase performance might be linked to the variety of um, ergogenic responses, including cardiovascular, thermoregulatory, and cellular adaptions. In contrast to all this, some studies have come up dry with any improvements. So that's specific to the cold, which to me is incredibly comparable to uh, altitude training. You will get studies that live and die by altitude training, saying that doing it, doing training at altitude will improve your um, sea level performances, of which I do already have an episode on if you're more interested in that. But as a summary, essentially some are saying that and then others are supporting the idea that altitude training for someone who is going to be training uh, racing only at, at sea level doesn't have a benefit. Where it has a benefit is if you're doing, say, a grand tour in cycling and you go to altitude, you come back down and you know you're going to have to perform at altitude, say, on a mountain stage. Whereas, say, you're a marathon runner who's just going to be running at sea level, there's not necessarily any incentive. However, where the confusion somewhat lies is the fact that there are adaptions that are gained from being born, living, bred even, at altitude, say, of 2,000 meters, and then those benefits cannot be um, obtained by someone who was not born there or has not got the like the effectively the genes for lack of a better word has not got the heritage linked to that um, so there are several additional potential benefits that may be conferred by heat acclimation that could contribute to improved exercise capabilities heat acclimation can decrease the oxygen uptake response to submaximal exercise always a benefit uh, the greater reliance on carbohydrates as a fuel source during exercise in the heat is also influenced by heat acclimation, uh, with muscle glycogen utilization decreasing by 40 to 50% in some cases. This glycogen sparing effect of heat acclimation has also been shown to be quite small, however, in other studies, and apparent only during exercise in cool conditions. A further effect of heat acclimation is the reduce, uh, reduction of blood and muscle lactate uh, accumulation during submaximal exercise and the increase in power output at lactate threshold. The mechanism mediating these adaptions remain pretty unclear but could stem from the increase in total body water enhancing lactate removal through increased circulation and through increased cardiac output and decreased metabolic rate um, and delaying lactate accumulation in the first place. So to kind of summarize it all, I think it's definitely worth um, doing heat acclimation. Unlike something like altitude where you'd have to buy an altitude tent or go to altitude in reality to train at altitude and not just sleep in a tent at altitude. It's so cost effective that I don't see why, especially mid-season, not mid-season, sorry, in your off-slash-base training period, where you're just noodling around, doing some um, base miles, not too much intensity, just do a little block of heat acclimation, however you manage to do it, maybe do a th- like a, a ramp test even, just to eliminate the load and the cognitive pressures of doing a 20-minute test, 
and just see what you get the first time and then a week later after 10 days of heat acclimation do another one and just see what happens or like seven days or five days or whatever and just see if there's any notable change and maybe if you're someone who's relatively untrained maybe has a ftp of uh 200 watts and you suddenly do a ramp test and you get you're a high responder and you get like 20% benefit and you see 240 or something outrageous then you go what's this this is a big enough change that I hope something and just try keep it all the same but I don't think there's any issue with squeezing in two heat acclimation sessions followed by some hot baths or whatever in the build-up to a main event or even in a build-up to a uh, just a hot race series of hot races. I think if nothing else, even if it isn't having any physiological benefit, which I find hard to believe, the cognitive difference of coming from a hot environment and then racing in a hot environment is, to me, worth the effort. So with that... Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you want more content like this, there are plenty of previous episodes to check out. But before you do, why not follow the podcast and leave it a rating wherever you get your podcasts from? Or even better, share it with a friend. For any comments, feedback, or if you would like to suggest a topic for a future episode, I can be contacted at the vo 2 lounge at gmail.com. And with that, I will see you in the next episode.